coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS Podcast. Our guest today is Registered Dietitian Nutritionist, Michael Ann Hahn, here to talk with us about her experience in critical care nutrition support. Dr. Hahn obtained her Bachelor of Science degree with a focus in nutrition and dietetics at Auburn University, followed by a dietetic internship at Baylor University Medical Center. While obtaining her Master of Clinical Nutrition degree at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, she started working as a per diem clinical dietitian at a hospital in Dallas, Texas. Michael Ann moved into a full-time position as a clinical dietitian toward the end of her master's program and shortly thereafter obtained her clinical nutrition support clinician or CNSC credential and was trained on the placement of nasoenteric feeding tubes using the assistance of electromagnetic placement devices. She has since been placing tubes since 2015. Throughout her time in the hospital, she has provided specialized nutrition support therapy to various patient populations, including three years in a level one trauma intensive care unit. Additionally, she has recently completed her Doctor of Clinical Nutrition degree from Rutgers University, in which her doctoral research focused on institutional cost savings achieved when registered dietitian nutritionists place nasoenteric feeding tubes. Dr. Hahn now cares for heart and lung transplant patients as a transplant nutrition specialist. Dr. Hahn, thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Hopefully I can answer your questions, but I love DNS and um, I love that the podcast is a part of what our members get to listen to. Well, you have worked in some pretty intense situations, trauma, heart and lung transplant, feeding tube insertion. What led you down the path of working with these patient populations? That's a great question. Um, I knew that I wanted to be a registered dietitian since I was in middle school when I had to see my own registered dietitian due to just personal reasons. And she had such a good influence on my life that I knew that that was a career path that I wanted to move forward in. Whenever I was at Auburn University, I had a really great mentor, um, Dr. Serene Gropper, and she really helped kind of hone my skills and more importantly, really helped me get into a great internship at Baylor University Medical Center. And initially, I, I didn't want to be in the hospital. I wasn't sure what I really wanted to do. I was thinking food science, industry, but whenever I got to Baylor University Medical Center for my dietetic internship, I saw what the dietitians were able to do, place feeding tubes, write internal nutrition orders, manage parental nutrition orders, and they were really a part of the team. And I loved being able to observe that. And I wanted to do that myself. So that's what really plugged me in into staying in the hospital setting. And whenever I first started, I was PRN, I was still doing school. And so I was able to see a lot of different areas, anywhere from just the medical floors into ICU settings. And so whenever I moved into full time, I actually started out in the medical ICU, which was a really great learning experience because you get those chronically ill ventilated patients 
and you, you get to start to integrate yourself as part of the team. And then from there, I was in the medical ICU for about three years. I moved into a level one trauma ICU. Being able to manage the internal nutrition, place feeding tubes, um, and the parental nutrition orders on these patients really allowed me to feel like an integral part of the team. And I loved that. I loved being able to try to figure out, well, there's a hole in the gut here and it's connected this way. And how does that impact how I'm feeding or I can't feed? And um, then I've transitioned into recently to working with heart and lung transplant patients that I really enjoyed uh, so far. I've been in it for about a year and a half to almost two years now. And so I just kept on saying yes to opportunities. And then I had great mentors along the way that helped kind of hold my hand and um, present those opportunities to me as they arose. Describe a typical workday. Yeah, so I'll get into the hospital around 7 a.m. in the morning. Um, I will screen my patients. So I look, we have screening criteria that we follow here at the hospital that I work at. And then I divide it up with my counterpart. Um, from there, the first thing I do is I go into the, my list in um, the medical chart and I start to look at all the ICU patients that I've been following consistently. It's really important that I feel prepared going into rounds and for me to feel prepared going into rounds means that I know what happened from the last time I saw the patient to this morning. So if that patient was intubated, were they extubated? Did we lose internal nutrition access? Did they go on pressers? What happened since I last saw that patient? Because I never want to go into rounds feeling ill-prepared. So I'll take a look at the notes, the labs, medication changes, eyes and nose, any x-rays that might have popped up. And once I feel very prepared, then I'll go into rounds around 9 a.m. and I'll be with the team. Um, we have a team in really great multidisciplinary rounds at the unit that I work on in the cardiothoracic transplant ICU that includes multiple doctors, pharmacists, dietitians like myself, um, the nurses, and then RT if they are around as well. And so as a group, we all round on the patients together. And I feel like my voice is heard in, in my group and my team, which is really a great feeling at the end of the day. Um, after rounds and huddles on the floor, that usually ends around 11 noon. Then I spend the rest of my day seeing patients. And if I have extra time, I'll dive into some research that I might be working on on the side. And then I leave the hospital, go home and start the day all over the next day. How do you balance your quote unquote usual patient care responsibilities with the more advanced practice skills like feeding tube insertion? Great question. I think for me, placing feeding tubes is seen as my usual patient care. Um, it's something that I've always done as soon as I was able to get checked off at my facility to place feeding tubes, I've always been doing it. So since around 2014, 2015, I've been placing feeding tubes. And it's usually no predict when a patient might need one. And then you make around your patient care mind of that. Unfortunately, I will eat lunch all the time, but uh, you just can anticipate is a part of my patient care because I've been doing it for so long. So I'm able to manage it because I can most of the time anticipate what those patients need. And I know that I'm going to have to place a feeding tube or I just make the appropriate adjustments throughout my day. 
quote, documenting cost savings associated with dietitians, placing nasoenteric feeding tubes is huge. So, you know, understanding that you have done that at your, at your facility, but have you identified any other cost saving opportunities um, or is there anything that you hope to study in the future? That's a really great question. Um, with my doctoral research, we were able to found that the dietitians here at the facility I work with were able to provide a cost avoidance of over $275,000 um, over a five-year time period just for the elimination of egg rates while using an electromagnetic placement device at our facility. Um, so whenever you look at huge cost savings at that level, you're really helping to justify dietitians' salary at the end of the day. And that's what we really need to be able to do is we need to justify what are we providing or what are we saving for these institutions that helps us show our work. And if we're able to show more worth, then we're going to get paid better. Um, so research like that can really help give support dietitians to have these advanced skill sets. Um, and so if you kind of look at cost savings from across the board, Whenever you look at minute things, those can make a big difference at the end of the day. So if you have those insures that are going on the tray every time, three times a day, is your patient really drinking them? Can we take them off? Do they really just need one a day? Um, of course, we want, if they need three a day, give them three a day. But most of the time, they're not going to drink that many. So small things like taking off an oral nutritional supplement or even looking at your medications Whenever you look at patients getting sliding scale insulin and getting point of care glucose checks at our facility, that costs patients $50 every time it happens. So if you're doing sliding scale insulin Q4 hours and you expand that over a week, that's close to $2,000. Do they really need those glucose checks? Are you really treating it? Or can we look at other labs that they're getting daily and monitor the need of insulin off of those labs? So cost savings can be large, or they can also be really small, minute things that you're doing at the end of the day. Another way that you can look at cost savings is management of parental nutrition orders, taking that parental nutrition off as soon as that patient is able to tolerate a diet and you feel competent that they're going to do well, that saves thousands. So I don't have any research that I'm looking at right now at cost savings. But whenever um, you want to dive deeper into that, we need to be able to establish as dietitians how we're providing services to these hospitals and what our worth is at the end of the day. And if we don't have the research to back it, then we're kind of left just saying, well, maybe we do this, maybe we do that. But I really think that research, like cost savings and what we're providing to hospitals helps elevate us and supports our salary. And at the end of the day, we all really just want to get paid more. And so we need to be doing our part to show that we give good services to these hospitals. Well, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it, it goes, you know, it, it covers a lot of territory with salaries, with additional, additional dietitians, with hiring technicians to, you know, assist and help the dietitians be more productive. So there's a ton of different benefits that can come from proving your worth and capturing these cost-saving opportunities. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. So switching gears a little bit, thinking about the critical care areas that you've covered or that you're currently covering, what are your go-to sources of nutrition information? 
that's an excellent question because we need to be able to stay up to date on the most recent literature and be following guidelines that are provided by organizations. So my go-to, and I might be partial because my boss and mentor at the time at right now is Jeanette Hassey, but I love nutrition and clinical practice. Um, I think that it's a journal that really is able to touch on things that I need to know and research topics that are relevant to me, all the while not being isolated in this silo that doesn't feel relevant to what I'm looking at and has a broad, broad range of topics. Um, beside NCP, I also like looking at JPEN too. They come out at the same time, so you get both articles and a lot of information at the same time. But I love that it also can coincide and have articles in there that are pertinent to what I need to know too. And I'm not saying this because I'm a DNS member or I'm doing this podcast, but I love, love, love support line. I love that it's written by dietitians. So it feels that it's talking to me, but it's a colleague at the same time um, that knows my situation, understands what I'm dealing with at the end of the day. So it doesn't feel like it's so far of a reach. I love that support line has those articles that feel like they are practical and they understand the clinical setting that I'm dealing with at this certain time. I've read support line since I was a new, new dietitian and every um, time they come out with a new one, I love to pick it up. The most recent one in October was very val valuable and it went over parental nutrition, um, trace element shortages and iron deficiency anemia which every time um, you can always learn something new. And outside of having good research articles that you can read and stay abreast of the most recent information is I have really excellent colleagues here at the current hospital that I work at. Um, they are tenured and they are smarter than me. And I love that I can be able to bounce ideas off of them if I have a challenging patient and they can do the same for me. Um, even whenever I have a hard to placement, I call in my colleague and she's able to help me maybe maneuver the tube a little bit different or just have a different angle on it. And um, having other clinicians that are, you know, able to talk about patient conditions and listen to each other is a really great environment. So I'm really lucky in the fact that I have great resources um, to lean on like Aspen and guidelines, like NCP, like support line. And then I have great clinicians that I can also um, dive into and pick their brains whenever I need to. Are there any special considerations for patients who are receiving nutrition support and either preparing for, or they've just had um, a heart and lung transplant? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot. And I've learned a ton since getting into this role. I didn't really appreciate what transplant dietitians did until I moved into this role. And there is so much to think about because you not only have the critical illness aspect post-transplant and possibly pre-transplant, but you also have all the other intricacies that go along with transplant and a new organ that I never thought about. So pre-transplant, you can have um, various things that impact their nutrition status. How long have they been on the wait list? Are you dealing with a chronic illness like cystic fibrosis for a lung transplant patient? Or do you have a patient who has an LVAD that's a 
on the wait list for a heart transplant? How long has that LVAD been in? What malnutrition issues are you dealing with before transplant? Um, and then how long have they been waiting for this? Is it a short amount of time in their crash and burn heart wait list status one that's on VA ECMO? You know, those are completely different than you have this three-year wait list um, of this heart failure patient that just has been chugging along, um, trying to manage their fluid and trying to eat a low-salt diet, um, which is never fun for anybody at the end of the day. So those patients, they're never the same, and you can't box them into uh, this perfect little category. So you have these individualized patients coming in all at different parts of their journey, and then they get a new organ. And then after that, that organ, they're still not in a box and they're still not going to follow the same route. Some might need a trach and be prolonged in support after a lung transplant. Some might need VB or VA ECMO. How does that look feeding these patients? Um, and then you also get into the fun part of new organ immunosuppression medications, steroids, hyperglycemia, hypertriglyceridemia, infection risks. So it, you really, you don't have that whenever you're looking at other patient populations, but with the transplant population, you just get this whole new influx of complications that I wasn't expecting, but has been a great thing to learn about um, over the past couple of years. So I wish I could say that every everyone is great and everything is perfect and you can treat them all the same and you do X, Y, and Z and you'll get X, Y, and Z outcome. But we all know that that's not how it works in the medical setting. And that's a great thing about working in the hospital setting is not every day is the same. Um, so it's a blessing at the end of the day. In addition to working with transplant patients, you know, you're also a member of the DNS leadership team. So tell us about your role with DNS and what you hope to accomplish throughout the remainder of this year. Yes. So I got plugged into DNS from a colleague that I had in my doctoral um, program. And I have been plugged into the sponsorship role for this is my second year. And it's been a great opportunity um, in several different aspects. Uh, I got plugged in to help out with a the feeding tube toolkit that DNS put out this year and working with great dietitians across the country like Britta Brown and then meeting everybody at FENCI and the other conferences. Um, I really have enjoyed being a part of the DNS leadership team because it helps me connect with other dietitians and they're a great group of uh, women and men who uh, just have a passion for nutrition and sometimes you don't always get to see that and it's great to be a part of it and we're having our symposium coming up so right before I did this podcast I was sending out emails to try to get sponsors to put on a great symposium for DNS coming up in 2024 um, so it's been, it's been great so far and I hope to continue, uh, my role in the, in the leadership team throughout through for the next couple of years. We'll see what happens. What advice would you give dietitians who are looking to expand their skills or their competency, you know, in critical care and nutrition support? I think I could give similar advice that I give interns as they, as they do their rotations with me. Um, and it's just very brief. There's only a few things that I would really recommend. Um, the first one is to read, 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 read. Um, nutrition is dynamic. It's not stagnant. It's always changing. And if you're not staying up to date with the latest research, 
you're going to have a doctor come day come to you one day and say, did you read this article? And it's never a good feeling whenever you say, no, I don't know that one. So read because you will be able to give your, get your point across to doctors or other medical professionals, and you will earn their respect by being well-versed in the literature. Um, another thing is I would say, listen all the time, listen on rounds. Whenever you think that that nephrologist is talking and has nothing to do with nutrition, I guarantee you he's going to say something that has some nutrition implication at the end of the day. Or if the nurse is talking, guarantee you she has information that you don't know. Um, so listen, listen to what your colleagues are talking about. And you're going to pick up little nuggets along the way and they're going to stay with you. And um, I still have nuggets that I keep in my back pocket that I learned as a fresh dietitian that if I just wasn't paying attention, I wouldn't have gotten that. Um, one of the other things is ask to learn, you know, ask to see a procedure, ask to go and watch a trach and peg placement at that bedside. Just last week, I asked to watch a GJ tube replacement in IR because I wanted to know what that tube looked like whenever they took it out of this patient, because I was curious if something had happened to it or malfunctioned with it. And that also helps build these relationships. Um, that was a radiologist last week that I would never have met before. And now if I see him at the hospital, I'm able to communicate with him and have more discussions about GJ2 placements or his ideas on what, how we should be managing these patients better. And lastly, I got this advice whenever I was very early on in my career was um, say yes. Say yes at the beginning to a lot of things. And then down the road, you'll be able to start to say no whenever it's the right time. But at the beginning, say yes a lot because those are going to just open up doors and then more doors are going to open up and more and more. And if you're looking to really build your career, then the, that, those are things that you'll never be able to get again. So continue to say yes. And then as you settle into it, there'll be your opportunities to start to say no. And then you'll feel more comfortable saying the no because you said yes so early on. Well, I myself have always, I've always considered myself to be a yes man. And I think that's great advice because you never know where that yes is going to take you. And you're right. You feel more comfortable saying no <laughs> when you've said yes so many times and you're confident in your decision making. Absolutely. I still probably ask anybody. I probably say yes more than I should still to this day, but those no's still come out every now and then. Well, with that, we will go ahead and conclude today's episode. Thank you again so much for taking time and saying yes to this podcast, um, but taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Christina, so much. And I love DNS. And listeners, remember to check out our website at dnsdpg.org and take advantage of a variety of resources available at no cost or reduced rate for our members. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.